Well, good morning, Snowden Baptist Church. I bring you warm greetings from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, where I served as pastor up until about 126 years ago. (laughs) And as you can tell over those 126 years, whatever British accent I had has faded. (laughs) Our text on this fine morning is just a single verse of scripture. It is Hebrews 13.5. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What power resides in the phrase, he has said? The person who can grasp by faith, he has said, has an all-conquering weapon in hand. What doubt will not be slain by this two-edged sword? What fear is it? which shall not fall smitten with a deadly wound before this arrow from the bow of God's covenant? Will not the distresses of life and the pangs of death, will not the corruptions within and the temptations without, will not the trials from above and the temptations from beneath all seem but light afflictions when we can hide ourselves behind the bulwark of He has said, whether for delight in our quiet moments or for strength in our conflicts, he has said must be our daily resort. Hence, let us learn, my friends, the extreme value of searching the scriptures. There may be a promise in the word which could exactly fit your case, but you may not know of it and therefore miss its comfort. You are like prisoners in a dungeon, and there may be one key in the bunch which would unlock the door and you might be free. But if you will not look for it, you may remain a prisoner still, though liberty is near at hand. There may be a potent medicine in the great pharmacopoeia of Scripture, and you may still remain sick, though there is the precise remedy that would meet your disease, unless you will examine and search the Scriptures and discover what he has said. Should we not, besides reading Scripture, fill our memories richly with the promises of God? We can recollect sayings of great men. We treasure up the verses of renowned poets. Ought we not to be profound in our knowledge of the words of God? We should be able to quote the promises of God when we would solve a difficulty or overthrow a doubt. He has said is the foundation of all riches and the fountain of all comfort. Let it dwell in you richly as a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. We turn at once with great pleasure to the wonderful words of our text. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have no doubt that you are aware that our translation does not convey the whole force of the original and that it would hardly be possible in English to give the full weight of the Greek. We might render it. He has said, I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. 
For though that would not be a literal, but rather a free rendering, yet, as there are five negatives in the Greek, we do not know how to give their force in any other way. Two negatives nullify each other in our language, but here in the Greek, they intensify the meaning, following one after another, as I suppose David's five stones out of the brook would have done if the first had not been enough to make the giant real. Here you have the five negatives very well placed and the force of the Greek as nearly as possible given. In trying to expound this fivefold assurance, this quintessence, quintessence of consolation, we shall have to draw your attention, first of all, to an awful condition, or what is negated here. Secondly, to a gracious promise, or what is positively guaranteed. Next, we shall observe notable occasions or times when this promise was uttered. And then a few words upon certain sweet confirmations which prove the text to be true. And then in the fifth place, suitable conditions which flow from the words of the promise. We begin with our first point. An awful condition. Lost and forsaken of God. What if we were forsaken by God? I am quite certain I shall fail in attempting to describe this state of affairs. I have thought of it, dreamed of it, and felt it in such feeble measure as a child of God can feel it. But, but how to describe it, I know not. Forsaking implies an utter loneliness. Put a traveler in a vast howling wilderness where for many a mile there is no trace of people, no footstep of any traveler. The solitary wretch cries for help, but the hollow echo of the rocks is his only reply. No bird in the air, not even a prowling jackal in the waste, not an insect in the sunbeam to keep him company, not even a solitary blade of grass to remind him of God. Yet, even there, he is not alone. For the bare rocks prove a God, and the hot sand beneath his feet and the blazing sun above his head all witness to a present deity. But what would be the loneliness of a man forsaken of God? No migration could be so awful as this, for he says, if I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. And such a state were worse than hell. For David says, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. Loneliness is a feeling which none of us delight in. Solitude may have some charms, but they who are forced to be her captives have not discovered them. A temporary solitude may give pleasure, but to be alone, utterly alone, is terrible. To be alone without God is such an emphasis of loneliness that I defy the lip 
even of a damned spirit to express the horror and anguish that must be concentrated in it. There is far more than you and I dream of in the language of the Lord Jesus when he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Alone. You remember he once said, you shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Well, there is no agony in that sentence, but what must be his grief when he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. My God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry of human nature at its uttermost dismay. Thank God. You and I, by our text, are taught that we never shall know the desperate loneliness of being forsaken of God. Yet what we've described is what it would be if he should forsake us. Well, still considering this awful condition of being forsaken of God, mingling with the mournful solitude is a sense of utter helplessness. Power belongs to God. Withdraw the Lord and the strong men must utterly fail. The archangel without God passes away and is not. The everlasting hills do bow and the solid, solid pillars of the earth are dissolved. Without God, our dust returns to the earth. Without God, Our spirit mourns like David. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. Christ knew what this was when he said, I am a worm and no man. He was so utterly broken, so emptied of all power, that as he hung with dislocated limbs upon the cross, he cried, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. You have brought me into the dust of death. No broken reed or smoking flax can be so feeble as a soul forsaken of God. Our state would be as deplorably destitute as that of Ezekiel's infant, deserted and cast into the open field with none to swaddle and none to care for it, left utterly to perish and to die. Such should we be if we could be forsaken of God. But glorious are those negatives which shut us in from all fear of this calamity. Well, loneliness, helplessness, add these together and then put the next, hopelessness. A man forsaken of men may still entertain some hope. But let him be forsaken of God, and then hope has failed. The last window is shut. Let him look to men, and they are broken reeds. Let him turn to angels, and they are avengers. Let him look to death, and even the tomb affords no refuge. Look where he will, Blank, black despair seizes hold upon him. Our blessed Lord knew this when lover and friend had been put far from him and his acquaintance into darkness. It was only his transcendent faith which enabled him, after all, to say, you will not leave my soul in hell. 
Neither will you permit your Holy One to see corruption. The black shadow of this utter hopelessness went over him when he said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Well, to make up this fourfold forsaking, let us add to all this loneliness, helplessness, and hopelessness, a sense of unutterable agony. We speak of agony, but to feel it is a very different thing. Misery and despair, the wrestling of these with the spirit till the spirit is trodden down and crushed and broken and chooses strangling rather than life, a horrible sense of every evil having made one's heart its den, a consciousness that we are the target for all of God's arrows, that all God's waves and billows have gone over us, that he has forgotten to be gracious, that he will be merciful to us no more, that he has in anger shut up the depths of his compassion. This is a part of being forsaken of God which only lost spirits in hell can know. Our unbelief sometimes let us get a glimpse of what this would be, but it is only a glimpse, only a glimpse. Let us thank God that we are delivered from all fear of this tremendous evil. Beloved, we have before us now in the second place a gracious promise, or what is positively Guaranteed. What is guaranteed in this promise? Beloved, herein God gives to his people everything. I will never leave you. Then no attribute of God can cease to be engaged for us. Is he mighty? He will show himself strong on the behalf of them that trust him. Is he love? then with everlasting loving kindness he will have mercy upon us. Whatever attributes may compose the character of God, every one of them to its fullest extent shall be engaged on our side. Moreover, whatsoever God has, whatever can be contained in infinity or can be held within the circumference of eternity, whatever can be in him who fills all things and is yet greater than all things, all these things shall be with his people forever since he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, how one might enlarge here, but I forbear. You yourselves know that to sum up all things, is a task beyond all human might. More fully, however, to expound this promise, I would remind you of three significant occasions in which it occurs in Scripture. The first instance is to be found in Genesis 28:15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you in all places wherever you go and will bring you again into this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken of to you. Now here we have the the promise in the case of the man of many trials. 
More than either Abraham or Isaac, Jacob was the son of tribulation. He was now flying away from his father's house, leaving the over-fondness of a mother's attachment, abhorred by his elder brother who saw his blood. He lies down to sleep with a stone for his pillow, with the hedges for his curtains, with the earth for his bed and the heavens for his canopy. And as he sleeps thus friendless, solitary and alone, God says to him, I will never, never leave you. Mark his after career. He is guided to Paddan Aram. God, his guide, leaves him not. At Paddan Aram, Laban cheats him, wickedly and wrongfully cheats him in many ways, but God does not leave him. And he is more than a match for the thievish Laban. Jacob flies at last with his wives and children, and Laban, in hot haste, pursues him, but the Lord does not leave him. Mizpah's mount bears witness that God can stop the pursuer and change the foe into a friend. Esau comes against him. Let Jabbok testify to Jacob's wrestlings. And through the power of him who never did forsake his servant, Esau kisses his brother, whom once he thought to slay. Anon, Jacob dwells in tents and booths. He journeys up and down throughout the land, and his sons treacherously slay the Shechemites. Then the nations round about seek to avenge their death, but the Lord again interposes, and Jacob is delivered. Poor Jacob is bereaved of his sons. He cries, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. And now you will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. But they are not against him. God has not left him. For he has not yet done everything that he had spoken to him of. The old man goes into Egypt. His lips are refreshed when he kisses the cheeks of his favorite Joseph. And until the last, when he gathers up his feet in the bed and sings of that coming Shiloh, and the scepter that should not depart from Judah, good old Jacob proves that in six troubles God is with his people, and in seven he does not forsake them, that even to their gray hairs he is the same, and until old age he does carry them. You Jacobs, full of affliction, you tried and troubled heirs of heaven, he has said to you, each one of you, oh, believe him, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Well, a second occasion upon which our promise was made is in Joshua 1.5, where the Lord says to Joshua, There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Now, this is a minister's text. If we be called to lead the people, to to bear the brunt of the fight, 
the burden and heat of the day, let us treasure up this as our precious consolation. He will not fail us nor forsake us. I need not tell you that it is not every man who can stand first in the ranks, and that albeit there is no small share of honor given by God to such a man, yet there is a bitterness in his lot which no other men can know. There are times when, if, if it were not for faith, he would give up the ghost. And if the master were not with us, we would turn our back and fly like Jonah unto Nineveh. But if any of you be called to occupy prominent positions in God's church, bind this about your arm and make it your strong bulwark. He has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Go in this your might. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. But once more, and perhaps this last occasion of our promise may be the most comforting to the most of you. Isaiah 41:17, which reads, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongues fail for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. You may be brought to this state today. Your soul may need Christ, but you may not be able to find him. You may feel that without the mercy which comes from the atoning blood, you are lost. You may have gone to works and ceremonies, to prayings and doings, to almsgivings and to experiences, and have found them all dried wells. And now you can hardly pray, for your tongue cleaves to the roof of your mouth for thirst. Now in your worst condition, brought to the lowest state into which a creature can ever be cast, Christ will not forsake you. He will appear for your help. Friends, surely one of these three occasions that we have mentioned must suit you. And let me here remind you that whatever God has said to any one saint, he has said to all. When he opens a well for one man, it is that all may drink. When the manna falls, it is not only for those in the wilderness, but we, by faith, do eat the manna still. No promise is of private interpretation. When God opens a granary door to give out food, there may be one starving man who is the occasion of its being opened, but all the hungry besides may come and feed as well. Whether he gave the word to Abraham or to Moses matters not. He has given it to you as one of the, the covenanted seed. There is not a high blessing too lofty for you, nor a wide mercy too extensive for you. Lift up your eyes now to the north and to the south and to the east and the west, for all this is yours. Climb to Mount Pisgah's top and view the utmost limit of the divine promise, for the land is all your own. There is not a brook of living water of which you may not drink. 
If the land flows with milk and honey, eat the honey and drink the milk. The fattest of the herd, yes, and the sweetest of the wines, let all be yours. For there is no denial of any one of them to any saint. Be bold to believe. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. To put everything in one, there is nothing you can want. There is nothing you can ask for. There is nothing you can need in time or in eternity. There is nothing living, nothing dying. There is nothing in this world, nothing in the next world. There is nothing now, nothing at the resurrection morning, nothing in heaven that is not contained in this text. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Well, I shall give five blows to drive home the nail as I speak upon the sweet confirmations of this most precious promise. First, let me remind you that the Lord will not and cannot leave his people because of his relationship to them. He is your father. Will your father leave you? Has he not said... Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Would you, being evil, leave your child to perish? Never, never. Remember, Christ is your husband. Would you, a husband, neglect your wife? Is it not a shame to a man unless he nourishes and cherishes her even as his own body? And will Christ become one of these ill husbands? Has he not said, I hate divorce? And will he ever divorce you? Remember, you are part of his body. No man yet ever hated his own flesh. You may be but as a little finger, but will he leave his finger to rot, to perish, to starve? You may be the least honorable of all the members, but is it not written that upon these he bestows abundant honor, and so our uncomely parts have abundant comeliness? If he be a father, if he be husband, if he be head, if he be all in all, how can he leave you? Think not so harshly of your God. The second sweet confirmation of our promise is that his honor binds him to never forsake you. When we see a house half built and left in ruins, we say, Now, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Shall this be said of your God that he began to save you and could not bring you to perfection? Is it possible that he will break his word and so stain his truth? Shall men be able to cast a slur upon his power, his wisdom? 
his love, his faithfulness. No. Thank God. No. I give, he says, unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. If you should perish, believer, hell would ring with diabolical laughter against the character of God. And if ever one whom Jesus undertook to save should perish, then the demons of the pit would point the finger of scorn forever against a defeated Christ, against a God that undertook but went not through. And if that be not enough... Will you remember besides this, that the past, the past, all goes to prove that he will never forsake you. You have been in deep waters. Have you been drowned? You have walked through the fires. Have you been burned? You have had six troubles. Has he forsaken you? You have gone down to the roots of the mountains and the weeds have been wrapped about your head. Has he not brought you up again? You have borne great and sore troubles, but has he not delivered you? Say, when did he leave you? Testify against him if you have found him forgetful. Then doubt him. If you have found him unworthy of your confidence, then disown him, but not till then. The past is vocal with a thousand songs of gratitude. And every note therein proves by an indisputable logic logic that he will not forsake his people. And if that be not Enough. Ask the saints that have gone before. Did any perish ever trusting in Christ? I have heard that some whom God loved have fallen from grace and have been lost. I have heard lips of ministers thus prostitute themselves to falsehood. But I know that such never was the case. He keeps All his saints, not one of them has perished. They are in his hand and have hitherto been preserved. David mourns, all your waves and your billows have gone over me. Yet he cries, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Jonah laments, The earth with her bars was about me forever. And yet, ere long, he says, salvation is of the Lord. You glorified ones above. Through much tribulation, you have inherited the kingdom. And wearing your white robes, you smile from your thrones of glory and say to us today, doubt not the Lord, neither distrust him. He has not forsaken his people nor cast off his chosen. Beloved friends, there is no reason why he should cast us off. Can you adduce any reason why he should cast you away? Is it your poverty, your nakedness, 
your peril, the danger of your life. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that has loved us. Do you say it is your sins? Then I answer, sin can never be a cause why God should cast away his people. For they were full of sin when he at first embraced their persons and espoused their cause. That would have been a cause why he should never have loved them. But having loved them when they were dead in trespasses and sins, their sin can never be a reason for leaving them. May God deliver us from the infamous bondage of the doctrine which makes men fear that God may be unfaithful, that Christ may divorce his own spouse, that he may let the members of his own body perish, that he may die for them and yet not save them. If there be any truth taught us in Scripture, it is that the children of God cannot perish. If this rock teaches anything whatever, if it be not all a fiction from beginning to end, it teaches in a hundred places that the righteous shall hold on his way and he that has clean hands shall wax stronger and stronger. The mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but the covenant of his love cannot depart from us, says the Lord who has mercy upon us. And now, fifthly, the suitable conclusions to be drawn from our promise. One of the first is contentment, contentment, contentment. The apostle says, having food and clothing, let us be content. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, had his water in a bottle. And he might have laughed at Isaac because Isaac had no bottle. But then here was the difference between them. Isaac lived by the well. Now, some of us have little enough in this world. We have no bottle of water, no stock in hand, but then we live by the well, and that is better still. To depend upon the daily providence of a faithful God is better than to be worth $10 million per year. Courage is the next lesson. Let us boldly say, God is my helper. Why should I fear what men can do unto me? A child of God afraid? Why, there is nothing more contrary to his nature. If any would persecute you, look them in the face and bear it cheerfully. If they laugh at you, let them laugh. You can laugh when they shall howl. If any despise you, be content to be despised by fools and to be misunderstood by madmen. It were hard if the world loved us. It is an easy thing if the world hates us. We are so used 
to be spoken of as altogether vile in our motives and selfish in our objects. We are so used to hear our adversaries misconstrue our best words and pull our sentences to pieces that if they were to do anything else but howl, we should think ourselves unworthy. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass and forget the Lord your maker who has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Well, next, with our promise ever before us, we ought to cast off our despondency. Some of you came here this morning despairing over something. But remember what he has said. I will never leave nor forsake you. So leave your troubles in your pews and go from this place later with a song. And then, my friends, our promise gives us grounds for the greatest possible delight. How we ought to rejoice with joy unspeakable if he will never leave us. Mere songs are not enough. Shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. And lastly, what ground there is here for faith. Let us lean upon our God with all our weight. Let us throw ourselves upon his faithfulness as we do upon our beds, bringing all our weariness to his dear rest. Let us cast the burdens of our bodies and the burdens of our souls on God, for he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Oh, I wish this promise belonged to you all. I would give my right hand if it could. But some of you must not touch it. It does not belong to some of you, for it is the exclusive property of the one who trusts in Christ. Oh, says one, then I will trust in Christ. Do it. Do it, soul. And if you trust in him, he will never leave you. Sinful as you are, he will wash you. He will never leave you. Wicked as you are, he will make you holy. He will never leave you. Though you have nothing that should win his love, he will press you to his bosom. He will never leave you. Living or dying in time or in eternity, he will never forsake you, but will surely bring you to his right hand and say, Here am I and the children whom thou hast given me. May God seal this word upon our memories and hearts for Christ's sake. Amen.